Manipulation is a skill set. I have a friend, uh, Catherine, who is really good at it. I was, uh, for one summer, I was her supervisor uh, for uh, summer camp at St. Crispin's. Uh, that one summer, I was the summer camp director, and I prayed to Jesus for me to be fired from that job. <laughs> but Catherine would come up to me uh, various times during the summer uh, with ideas about the staff and the way that we did things at camp. And one of the things she would do is come up with the reason for this thing that she was presenting to me that was completely unrelated to the real reason that she wanted it. I noticed it, and I noticed that it happened more than once, and so I finally took a risk and I asked her about it. I said, Catherine, you're oblique. Her response was, What's oblique? I said, when you want something, you don't ask directly. You come in at an angle looking for ways that the thing that you want might benefit somebody else because it will increase the likelihood that that thing will happen. Because it seems selfless. When in reality, it's really not. Well, she turned red. <laughs> And she, because she trusted me, she admitted that, uh, almost like confessing to a priest, that that is exactly what she does. Now, I was not upset with her for this. In fact, manipulation is a skill set. In some sense, what she was demonstrating was instincts for good leadership. And I would argue that she was maybe unwittingly, in some way, imitating a piece of the spirit of Jesus at least in this sense, that trying to shape our desires in such a way as they might not benefit only us, but also those around us. It seems to me to be a part of Jesus's uh, sanctifying grace, the thing that is working in us to change us and to mold us and shape us into something different. Or maybe at least approaching things like this is a starting place. Maybe it's not a good place to end but maybe it's a good place to begin. There are multiple occasions in the scriptures when there is a call for unity. We hear it today in Paul's letter to the group of followers in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus that all of you be in agreement and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. That sounds great as an abstraction. But when you actually begin to interact in community, how do you do that? St. Ignatius, who was one of the first generations of pastors after the apostles in the second century, he was a pastor in the church of Antioch. And he echoes this in his letter to the Ephesians. This is his, called his letter to the Ephesians. He says, it is therefore befitting that you should in every way glorified Jesus Christ, who's glorified you, that by a unanimous obedience you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and judgment, and may all speak the same thing concerning the same thing. And then listen to this. <laughs> and that being subject to the bishop and the priests, you may all be in all respects sanctified.
bit about being subject to the priests. <laughs> but let's unpack that. The actual practice of unity works under certain conditions. One of those conditions is that you, every once in a while, you gloss over to varying degrees your disagreements. And there's some wisdom in being, uh, in holding your tongue. I mean, there's sort of that trope about, you know, visiting home at Thanksgiving and Christmas, that you've got to make a decision not to bring up that thing because of, it's usually like crazy Uncle Joe, poor crazy Uncle Joe. But to always to do that is to create rather a, a thin, sentimental form of unity that's really not unity at all. And the kind of unity that will eventually collapse under the actual living of life when you move from the abstract to the details of life. And so maybe it's better to learn to speak the truth when it seems the right time and stay in relationship with people. But that's not easy. Today we heard about Jesus choosing his first disciples, Andrew and Simon and James and John. And I, but I want to draw your attention to some others in that 12 that are mentioned in other accounts of him choosing his disciples. One in particular is Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish man, but he worked for the Romans. He collected taxes for them. And make no mistake, Matthew was a sellout in the eyes of most of his brothers and sisters. And he benefited financially from this kind of work. At the same time, Jesus chose another man named Simon, not Simon Peter, who is very well known to most of us, but the, another Simon known as Simon the Zealot, or sometimes called Simon the Canaanite. Now, both of these descriptions were marks against him. And for those of you who are in my Wednesday night Bible study, I hope the word Canaanite piqued your, your ears, it, it made your ears tingle. Canaanites were considered at best kind of a substandard gypsy Jew in the same way that the, the Samaritans were sort of held under suspicion. And zealot, well, that's a term that referred to insurgents, revolutionaries, people who wanted to overthrow that Roman government by whatever means was necessary, including physical violence. Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the Canaanite zealot. I wonder how those guys got along. So what is Jesus doing? The gospel appointed for today is in part about Jesus choosing future leaders. People are going to shape communities, the communities of the kingdom. Leaders he would send out into the world to shape what would become known as the body of Christ. And then our St. Paul, our namesake, many decades later writing to subsequent leaders within that body, leaders who were shaping the atmosphere, were shaping with their personalities, with their personalities shaping the atmosphere. We heard their names. There was Apollos, there was Paul, there was Cephas. All, no, all doubt, no doubt, all of them big personalities with great passions for Jesus. People were drawn to them. They identified with that leader. So much so that that actually began to divide them and they split into factions. Leadership matters. 
There's echoes of Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals running throughout the back of my mind as I thought about this. Lincoln was known as he began his presidency to recruit some of the political adversaries that he had accrued to serve in his cabinet. They were the ones that he respected and knew to be good minds and good managers. Doris Kearns Goodwin, who writes about it in her book by that same name, The Team of Rivals, she says that this has some well-deserved irony in it because Lincoln was president over a period in our, government, in our nation's history when we were severely divided. It was at the 1858 Illinois Republican State Convention before his presidency that Lincoln was selected by the Republicans to be the, the nominee for U.S. Senate. And it was then that he gave his house divided speech. This is him talking. He says, we're now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. And in my opinion, it will not cease until the crisis shall have been reached and passed. And this is where Lincoln quotes Jesus. A house divided not stand. He continues, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all the one thing or all the other. Lincoln knew, and I'm sure Jesus knew, and I suspect that Paul knew, that being of one mind is mostly an abstraction. But in our divisions, it's necessary for us to identify what you might call stanchions of unity. A stanchion is like a pole. You know those weight-supporting walls you have in your house? Some walls in your house, you can take them out. No big deal. And some walls, if you take them out, the whole house falls. How do we identify those things that draw us together and make sure that we don't kick them out of the house? When Jesus put together a ragamuffin, ragtag group of adversarial squabblers as his disciples, what was he doing? So, let's take on the project. Now, I call it a project because I don't think there's a simple answer to this. Let's take on the project of Jesus. And maybe like Camp Counselor Catherine... A starting place, not the only one. A starting place is to look for overlap, places where the thing that you want and you care about can be shaped and molded and manipulated to be like something that somebody else also needs. In Paul's letter to the Roman church, he said it this way. He said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any would complete by being like-minded, having that same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests only, but each to the interest of others. 
And then he says, in your relationships, have the same mind as Jesus. And there it is. The project of trying to know the mind of Jesus. And then, when things move from the abstract to the detailed, to pray to God that he puts that mind into motion. This church has been uh, pretty knee-deep in the exercises of St. Ignatius. And when you go through them, there's one exercise that you're invited to do, and that is to meditate and to try to think the way Jesus thinks and intersects in the events and relationships of your life. How would Jesus perceive this thing that I'm having to think about? How would Jesus act? It's a terrible exercise. And I mean that it's, it's, it's horrible in the sense that it will lead you to places that you'll say to yourself, I can't do that. It's awe-filled. Your starting place might be clandestinely selfish and oblique. But by the grace and the mystery of God, maybe God will change that thing and transform it into something that is selfless. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.